Welcome to the April 18th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 2 Samuel chapters 3 through 5, and hopefully you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. Second Samuel chapter three. Uh, let's let's read verse one. During the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David was growing stronger, and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Uh, David had been legitimately anointed king by Samuel, but Samuel wasn't around to call all of Israel to accept David as their king. Samuel was dead. So David was left to try and figure out how he could take what was rightfully given to him. We learned in verses 2 through 5 that David had at least six wives. But remember, when we read the Bible's narratives, things aren't right because the Bible characters did them. So when we look at David marrying multiple wives, we know that it is sinful. Even though it's not stated that it's sinful, it is not the biblical ideal and it is wrong. Um, now the spotlight, sh- the spotlight shifts to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and Abner, his commander. Look at uh, verses six and seven. It says, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kept inquire- uh, kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth questioned Abner. Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Okay. Abner was gaining power, and we're told that in the text. I wonder if Abner was merely using Ishbosheth as a prop. He was Saul's son, and so he knew the people would accept him as their king, but the one really leading behind the scenes was Abner. But then a day came when Ishbosheth asked a question, but it wasn't merely a question. It clearly included an accusation of sexual misconduct for the purposes of gaining even more power. Whether or not Abner committed adultery isn't so clear, but I suspect that he did. Having a sexual relationship with Saul's concubine would be a power play. It would be a clear sign that Abner was setting himself up as the next in line for the kingship. Ishbosheth would have recognized this, and so he confronted Abner, but Abner knew that he uh, was the true leader. How dare Ishbosheth even talk to him about such a matter? If it wasn't for him, Ishbosheth wouldn't have even come to the power as king. How dare Ishbosheth ask a question about anything that he was doing? Well, this was too much for Abner, and so he said he was going to put his weight behind David. Verses 9 through 11. May God punish Abner and do so severely if I don't do for David what the Lord swore to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Verse 11. Ishbosheth did not dare respond to Abner because he was afraid of him. So, Abner makes good on his threat. Listen to verses 12 and 13. 
Abner sent messengers as uh, his representatives to say to David, Whose land is this? Make your covenant with me, and you can be certain I am on your side to turn all Israel over to you. David replied, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. However, there's one thing I require of you. You will not see my face unless you first bring Saul's daughter, Michael, when you come to see me. Remember, Michael was uh, David's wife at one time, but then when Saul was uh, chasing after David, David fled. Then Saul ended up giving David's wife, Michael, to someone else. But when Abner heard these terms, he agreed to them. Uh, it was no skin off his back. But you may remember, uh, once again, that uh, as I was saying a while ago, that Saul did give Michael to another man. Uh, so this was getting complicated. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then David sent messengers to say to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, Give me back my wife, Michael. I was engaged to her for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. You may remember that story. So Ishbosheth sent someone to take her away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband followed her, weeping all the way to Bahurim. Abner said to him, Go back. I suspect it's not just what he said, but how he said that that uh, the husband just went back, we're told, so he went back. Um, in verses 17 through 39, we read about the assassination of Abner, and this is, this is that story. Abner uh, went to some of the elders in Israel and reminded them of their previous desire to follow David as their king, and he told them that if they followed him, they would defeat the Philistines. And when he was given assurances, Abner went to David. David held a massive feast, and Abner assured him that he could get all of Israel to recognize him as their king. Listen to verse 21. Abner said to David, Let me now go, and I will gather all Israel to my lord the king. They will make a covenant with you, and you will reign over all you desire. So David dismissed Abner, and he went in peace. But even though Abner went in peace, something really really bad was about to happen. Listen to verses 22 and 23. Just then David's soldiers and Joab returned from a raid and brought a large amount of plundered goods with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron because David had dismissed him and he'd gone in peace. When Joab and his whole army arrived, Joab was informed. Abner, son of Ner, came to see the king. The king dismissed him and he went in peace. It was... Years earlier, when Joab never forgot or forgave Abner for killing his little brother, Joab now saw an opportunity, and he was about to take revenge. Joab went to David and blew a gasket. He accused Abner of deceiving David before David. We're not told that David said anything. Maybe he didn't. He couldn't prove that Joab was wrong, that... Uh, Abner was being duplicitous. He couldn't prove that. He just knew that he believed he had reason to trust him. So we're not told that he said anything. David probably didn't say anything, and Joab left. He left David's presence, and unknown to King David, he sent messengers to retrieve Abner. Verse 27, When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab pulled him aside to the middle of the city gate, as if to speak to him privately, 
and there Joab stabbed him in the stomach. So Abner died in revenge for the death of Asahel, Joab's brother. Thoughts of revenge are strong in the human heart. But we're told in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 20, that we should never seek personal revenge. In fact, listen to the logic. We're not to seek revenge because God will take care of it in his own way and in his own time. So since we can be comforted that God will take care of it, we can serve and bless even our enemies. Listen to the logic of Romans 12, 19 through 20. Paul writes, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Don't take revenge. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Let God handle it. Because it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. It's Deuteronomy 32, 35. I will repay, says the Lord. But... And now, uh, Paul is quoting Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap fiery coals on his head. And so the logic of Romans 12, verses 19 and 20 is that when an injustice happens, one, you are not to exercise personal revenge. Two, that you are to find satisfaction in the fact that God will deal with this. Now, some things need to be turned over to the authorities if it's illegal or morally wrong and it, it broke some laws of the land. Then it gets turned over, but we ultimately are satisfied in the fact that God um, or God working through government deals with it. It's not our business to do that. But since we know that it is going to be dealt with, and if our government fails us, then God himself will deal with it in his own way and in his own time. Then we are told, since we know that God's going to deal with it, if our enemy is hungry, we feed him. If he's thirsty, we give him drink. Because we know that God's taking care of it. We're leaving it to him. That's how we can bless even our enemies, is knowing that God, resting in the fact that God is going to deal with with the injustice. The whole last part of this where it says uh, heaping coals of fire on his head, you know, when you feed him when he's hungry and when you give him something to drink when he's thirsty, uh, it says that you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. And some say, well, I'd love to just heap the fiery coals on their head. Well, what that was is it was, it's understood to be an Egyptian custom at that time of repentance. In the time of Solomon, you know, as he was writing the proverb, it was seen to be an Egyptian custom of repentance. And so Solomon, I mean, uh, Paul was saying that as we give acts of kindness to those who have done an injustice against us, it, they are thoroughly emotionally unprepared for that. They think that we should respond back in kind, and then they will justify our mean words or our actions or our rejection of them, whatever. They'll justify their own actions that are undesirable coming back our way, and then you've got a war. Then you've got just a personal battle going on. But we throw water on that whenever we do not respond in kind. We leave it to the Lord. 
Well, let's get back to the story. Joab took revenge, wrongfully, for his brother's death and killed Abner in cold blood. And David later heard about it and publicly condemned the act. He also essentially pronounced a curse upon Joab and his posterity. Listen to verses 31 and 32. 2 Samuel 3, 31 and 32. David then ordered Joab, and I suspect that Joab did not like this one bit. David then ordered Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. Uh, When they buried Abner in Hebron, the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept. And then King David sang a song out loud. It seems that he was giving expression to his grief over an unjust murder. Plus, he was publicly shaming Joab for calling by calling Joab a criminal. Listen to part of David's song in verses 33 and 34. And the king sang a lament for Abner. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet not placed in bronze shackles. You fell like one who falls victim to criminals. David is alluding to the fact that his own army commander acted like a criminal, was a criminal. What was David doing? One, I do believe that David was severe, but I, uh, sincere, but I also believe that he was savvy enough to realize that this was an opportunity for him to convince the people of Israel that he was a good guy. Not just Judah that he's ruling over, but all of Israel that Ishbosheth was over. He wanted to convince them that he is a good guy. This was a chance to win over all of Israel to his side, and that's what was beginning to happen. Listen to how this chapter ends in verses 35 through 39. Then they came to urge David to eat food while it was still day. But David took an oath. May God punish me and do so severely if I taste bread or anything else before sunset. All the people took note of this, and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. On that day, all the troops and all Israel were convinced that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his soldiers, You must know that a great leader has fallen in Israel today. As for me, even though I am anointed king, I have little power today. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too fierce for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Well, the only problem is that Ishbosheth is still alive. So technically, he's still the leader of Israel besides the tribe of Judah that David rules. But circumstances are about to change. Second Samuel chapter 4. In 2 Samuel 4, the spotlight now moves away from David and Joab and it focuses on Ishbosheth. Second 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When Saul's son Ishbosheth heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he gave up, and all Israel was dismayed. Um, honestly, whenever I read this, I thought, you know, like father, like son. Saul, Saul, yeah, King Saul was someone who, he, if he acted courageously, it tended to be that he was kind of hijacking someone else's courage who jumped out ahead of him. And so he would just kind of grab onto their coattails and follow along behind. He was not in himself someone who 
was courageous and willing to step up and deal with what needed to be dealt with in the moments. Well, whenever we read verse 1, we realize that, okay, he's acting, he's acting like his dad. When Saul's son Ishbosheth heard that what Abner, uh, that Abner had died in Hebron, he gave up. Well, what happens when the leader gives up? The rest of the verse, and all Israel was dismayed. As the leader goes, so go those that follow the leader. Then we're told in verses 2 and 3 of the two men who served under Ishbosheth, Bana and his brother Rechab, were leaders of raiding parties. And we may wonder why they're mentioned here, but that answer will come in just a few short verses. Then we're introduced to someone else. He's the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan, David's friend who was killed on Mount Geboa, right? And both of which had died uh, years earlier. Um, but uh, we're introduced to someone else who is Saul's grandson and Jonathan's son. Listen to verse 4. Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. How, how were his feet crippled? Was he born that way? No, this verse tells us what happened. It says he was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. What report? Well, that they had died. His nanny picked him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to flee, she fell, he fell, and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Okay, so file that away for a moment, because we're going to get back to um, these two men uh, in, that were mentioned a little bit earlier. We're certainly going to be coming back to Mephibosheth later on. He's going to play a big part um, in uh, David's reign. We're going to be reading about him. But let's get back to the other two, Bana and Rechab. Well, they showed up to Ishbosheth's place in the heat of the day, and we're told that he was taking a nap. Nothing against naps. Most of us enjoy them, but when the world is crumbling around you, it would seem that you either don't have time for naps or you're taking naps to escape the stress of being awake. Right? Well, Bana and Rechab slipped into Ishbosheth's room while he was taking that nap and stabbed him in the stomach. And then they slipped out undetected. But they took something with them. Listen to verses 7 and 8. They had entered the house while Ishbosheth was lying on his bed in his bedroom and stabbed and killed him. They removed his head, took it, and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. They brought Ishbosheth's head to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who intended to take your life. Today the Lord has granted vengeance to my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. If you've been seriously reading First and Second Samuel to this point, you already know how David is going to react. Banna and Rechab think that they're doing David a favor that would require a reward for them to receive. But what David is going to give them for killing a man in cold blood is not at all what they were expecting. Even his enemy, David, had just a way of relating to events that were unpredictable. But I'm telling you, David was no Jesus. David was a sinful man. Um, but I'm telling you that Jesus also often behaved and, and talked about things in a way that were totally unexpected a lot of times. Maybe there's something to that. 
Let's read verses 9 through 11. But David answered Rechab and his brother Bana, sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, As the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life from every distress, when the person told me, Look, Saul is dead, he thought he was a bearer of good news, but I seized him and put him to death at Ziklag. That was my reward to him for his news. How much more when wicked men kill a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed. So now should I not require his blood from you and purge you from the earth? In a very short time, their lifeless bodies with no hands or feet would be hanging in Hebron while Ishbosheth's corpse would uh, get a burial in Abner's tomb. Once again, David is being sincere. I believe he's being sincere. He has a clear sense of right and wrong. And it's wrong, even for his enemy, for someone to go in and stab his enemy in his belly to kill him and then to bring his head back. That was totally wrong. I believe that David is being sincere. But I also know that David had a healthy respect for authority, even authority that was a thorn in his side. They had no right to to take someone out who was in that position of authority. But I also suspect that he realized that if he responded correctly to each of these injustices, he could win the hearts of the Israelites, those who had previously been following Ishbosheth. We'll see this desire realized in the next chapter. Second Samuel 5. Let's start off by reading the first five verses of this chapter. Second Samuel 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So, David is now king over all of Israel. But the positive emotions of the moment may not last if he doesn't solidify the decision. At present, he was reigning from Hebron, uh, which uh, was a city in Judah. And eventually, the people who served Ishbosheth might allege that he was showing favoritism to Judah as he was now the king over all. But if he moved the city outside of Judah that was uh, to a city that was under Ishbosheth's control, then the people of Judah might resent it and say that he was playing favorites, that he was their king first. For this reason, he needed to find a neutral site. But where? Well, right up um, the uh, about 17 miles northeast from Hebron, uh, there was a walled city. It was the city that would come to be known as Jerusalem. 
It was neutral because the Jebusites lived there. It had never been taken by Joshua. It had never been taken by anybody. The Jebusites lived in this city, and the wall was so tall that they apparently had been able to ward off any attack of the Israelites. But David believed the people of Israel could take it. And if he could take this neutral site that did that uh, did not have inhabitants of Israel or Judah, then this could be seen as the neutral site from which he could rule over all of Israel. Verse 7, Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Okay, so this is something else I want you to follow away because we're going to be noticing this as we get further into 2 Samuel. We're also going to see it when we get into Kings and Chronicles. I want you to notice that the city of David is Zion or Mount Zion. It's the same thing. That may seem insignificant right now, but you need to file that away. The city of David is Zion, and when we're talking about Zion, we're talking about the city of David, okay? And this is, um, if you were to go to present-day Jerusalem, uh, and you went to what is supposedly the Temple Mount, and I do not believe that the temple is built there, and we'll talk about that when we get to those passages. Um, but the city of David did not include that. That wasn't even built whenever David took the city of Jebus. Uh, the city of David was actually south and a little bit um, west of that. It was connected to that, but it was a much smaller area than, of course, present-day Jerusalem. But just file it away. Zion is the city of David. The city of David is Zion. Okay? So then we read in verses 9 and 10, David took up residence in the stronghold, which he named the city of David. He built it up all the way around from the supporting terraces inward. David became more and more powerful, and the Lord God of armies was with him. Well, then we read that King Hiram of Tyre, and he was about 150, 150 miles farther north, built David a palace in Jerusalem. David filled up that palace because when he moved to Jerusalem, he took more wives and concubines and had more kids. And you read about that in the text. In verse 17, the Philistines heard that David was Israel's new king, so they wanted to pay him a little visit. David inquired of the Lord, and he was told to go and fight the Philistines. Israel's armies sent the Philistines in retreat. Then the Philistines came against Israel again. One beating wasn't enough. They wanted another one. But this time, the Lord told David not to run the same play. In football, you can't do the same thing over and over because the opposing team will anticipate it and defeat you, right? They'll outsmart you. You've got to change it up. And that's what the Lord told David to do. Listen to how this chapter ends. And once again, uh, whenever we read uh, in the book of Joshua, that whenever they were the Israelites under Joshua's leader were defeated at Ai, the Lord told them to run a different pattern, a different pattern. Uh, they weren't to go in the same way, to run a different play. And so that's what we read here. So listen to the last few verses of 2 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines came up again and spread out in Rephaim Valley. 
So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not attack directly, but circle around behind them and come at them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, act decisively, for then the Lord will have gone out ahead of you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So David did exactly as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Geba to Gezer. Well, as we're finishing up this chapter, I just hope that you, um, I hope that you are paying attention to these stories and actually enjoying these stories, um, because this is the word of God. This, the word of God. If if all we pay attention to is the commands and the precepts and you know the the shalls and shall nots. Um, then we are missing a big part of what God has given to us. Much of what he has given to us is written in stories. And uh, so I just want to encourage you to, to get into these because so many Christians these days don't even know what the Old Testament stories are. So I just want to congratulate y'all, um, congratulate you for following along in this uh, Bible reading plan. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that most, if not all of us, live in a society a bit more predictable and civilized than what we're reading about in 2 Samuel. But we also see that you used this story to rise up a king who would give us a bulk of the Psalms and would point us to Jesus as the ultimate king who will reign eternally on the throne of his father David. Lord, thank you for these stories and help us to see the things in them that you desire for us to see. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, we've come to the end of the 108th episode this year, and I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.